is talking real crap. Today, we got Dr. Tanya Golish-Boza. Dr. Tanya Golish-Boza is the founder of the Racism, Capitalism, and Law Lab and professor of sociology at the University of California, Merced. She is a prolific scholar with several books and dozens of academic articles and book chapters. She has received several awards, including Distinguished Contribution to Research Book Award from the Latino Latina Studies section of the American Sociological Association for her book, Deported, Immigrant Policing, Disposable Labor, and Global Capitalism. And her textbook, Race and Racism, A Critical Approach, which, by the way, me and my partner, Rebecca, have used, published by Oxford University Press, is now in its third edition and is the leading textbook in, the, in this field. Dr. Golish Boza is currently working on a project funded by the National Science Foundation that explores how gentrification affects formerly incarcerated Black men in Washington, D.C., that work is featured on a website, mappinggentrification.com. You should check that out. Professor Golash Boza is also the creator of the blog Get a Life PhD, which focuses on faculty success and well-being and has over 4 million page views. For this and other mentoring, she received the UC Merced Senate Award for Excellence in Faculty Mentorship in 2019. Welcome, Dr. Golash Boza. It is pronounced Golash Boza, right? Yes. All right. Yeah. By the way, that, that's not Hungarian, is it? Golash is um, Polish. Polish. Okay. Because my family's from Hungary on my mother's side. Mm. So I don't know. So I was just wondering. I mean, okay, it, I think at the time my family left, it was probably the same country. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, also, I didn't know that you taught at Merced. And by the way, is it okay if I call you Tanya? Of course. Yeah. Because okay, this I call you James. Absolutely, absolutely. Because this is actually the first time we met. So you're one of those people that I've invited on that I didn't actually know. So so I'm glad to get glad to get to know you. Please call me James. Right? All right. So you. I didn't know you taught at Cal, uh, UC Merced. Yeah. You know, so and uh, that's the newest UC. What's your experience like teaching over there? Oh, uh, UC Merced. I've, I've been here for eight years and I came from the University of Kansas. So it's very different teaching at a brand new university from one that's, KU likes to say they have the oldest sociology department in the country. Chicago likes to contest that. So I'm not sure, <laughs> but either way, it's, it prides itself on being an old sociology department. Whereas a UC Merced prides itself on having one of the newest PhD programs. I think UC Merced, Rice, and Washington University St. Louis started our PhD programs around the same time. So very new programs. So teaching at a new campus, I like to say, I mean, things are changing, but certainly at first it's not for everyone. Like if you if you want to just teach your classes, do your research and go home, UC Merced is not the place for you. Oh, really? Why is that? No. Why is that? You you well, first of all, it's exciting. You're gonna get pulled into building the university. And that is exciting. And I think 
if you if you don't do that, then you'll get pulled into doing something else. So there's a, the service expect, expectations are higher than at other campuses because we really do have to build the university. We have to build new programs. You know, every so every, something will come out like, oh, we don't have that, and we need to create it. Someone needs to create it. Can you create it? A, a funny story. I think in my second year at UC Merced, I did come in as an associate professor, but hadn't been there that long. One of my colleagues was like, Tanya, do you want to run for um, chair of the faculty senate? I was like, what? <laughs> like, I just literally got here. <laughs> so at UCLA, for example, to be chair of the faculty senate, you have to have been there, you know, 20 oh, yeah. years. But at UC Merced. You be ready to retire, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's exciting. It's a lot of work, but it's also, um, I find it, uh, what's the word? I find it like validating, like you can do things, you can build something and then you can see it. Like you can really, you can make a difference at UC Merced in ways that are way more difficult at other more established campuses. Yeah, and you know, uh, people who are not familiar with California always think of California as two spaces, either Los Angeles or San Francisco. And Merced is a very different space than those two places, right? It is a very different space. Um, I definitely see cows on my way to work. There's just yeah. to the context. Very rural. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, well, I'm glad they have you. And, and since it's a new campus, there's plenty of buildings and uh, things that they can name after you in the future. Well, yeah. But, and, you know, they have strategically named everything like classroom building. I'm like, they're waiting for someone. <laughs> <laughs> then maybe that's you. Maybe it's you. I know at USC, they, buildings are only named after the people who gave all the money to them yeah. uh, to have them built. So I don't know if that's the same at the UCs or I'm not. I'm pretty sure that's what the, the few buildings that we have names are local people with a lot of money. So I presume that's where the name came from. Mm, yeah, yeah. So when you're not being a sociologist, what do you do for fun? What I like to do, I like to walk. So I take an hour walk around my neighborhood every day. Um, once a week, I like to go hiking. So Merced isn't in, in the country, but we're also really close to Yosemite. So I like to go hiking, um, not necessarily in Yosemite, but in the foothills around it every weekend. Um, so I like to be outside as much as I can, especially during these times. Yeah. I, um, I remember a talk that Gloria Gonzalez Lopez gave at USC when I was a graduate student there to the graduate students about how to deal with graduate school. And she always said that that there were two things that kept her going through graduate school. And she called them her M&Ms. And she said it was movies and mountains. Mm. And she said that either when she was done with work at five o'clock every time, she would either watch a movie or go hiking in the mountains or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. Now, I like hiking, too. Um, I haven't done it as much lately, but I need to get back to it, you know, get back in shape. You know, so, yeah, so I know. Can... And I like to I'm pretty serious about it. I like to walk and I like to walk sometimes listening to podcasts. But for me, it's really important to have at least 30 minutes a day where I'm outside with nothing on. No, no email, no phone. I always leave my phone at home. So my kids are like trying to reach me I'm like, I'm on my walk. No phone. You'll be fine <laughs> for 30 minutes. <laughs> you know, you know, so. It's so strange in today's world because some parents will hear that. Like, oh, my God, how can you leave your kids with that? In the old days, that's how we all grew up. <laughs> you didn't have phones on us all the time. Mom went to the store. We're just going to have to do it you know, for the next 30 minutes to an hour or something. So, exactly. Yeah. And if you don't have a dime for a phone call, then, you know, you just have to yeah. walk home. <laughs> If the payphone worked, right? <laughs> you get down there, the, the whole phone's broken. You can't do anything. Right? So, 
just going to have to survive, right? So my first question for you is, uh, tell us about your new research examining the intersection between the war on drugs and gentrification in Washington, D.C. This is really interesting. Yeah, so to tell you that story, I kind of need to back up a little bit and tell you how I got interested in it. So um, I'm originally from Washington, D.C. Um, I grew up, I graduated high school in 1991, just to give you a context of the time period that I grew up in. So the time period I grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, was a very difficult time. I didn't know this until I started doing the research. But in 1991, Washington, D.C. had the highest homicide rate in the country. And that's actually the highest homicide rate in the history of the United States. So no city before or after. I think Detroit comes in second place in 1987. So just to give that context, um, a really high homicide rate. And then in 1997, Washington, D.C. had the highest incarceration rate in the world. So what that means for me growing up, I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly Black, working to middle class. And um, so growing up, a lot of people that I knew you know, fell victim to homicide or to the carceral system. And they got long sentences, you know, eight years, 10 years, 20 years, life without parole, so that's the context that I grew up in. And um, I don't live in Washington anymore. I, I did go to college at University of Maryland, but I haven't lived in the area since the 1990s. So when I go home to the neighborhood that I grew up in, um, it has changed a lot. It's gentrified. So that just sort of led me to wonder, how did this neighborhood first experience the violence of um, the era of mass incarceration, the era of high um homicide rates, and then now is experiencing gentrification. So that's how I got interested in it. But one interesting twist to the story is the neighborhood I grew up in, like objectively speaking, did have a lot of violence, a lot. I think in the, the census tracts I grew up in has, you know, about 5,000 people in it. In one year, 14 people were murdered, right? So that just that's like basically every month, you know, this small area that you're living in. But the thing about it is it wasn't a poor neighborhood. And I think most research on um, urban violence presupposes, like presumes the neighborhood is poor. But the neighborhood I grew up in wasn't poor. I mean, and, and most people that I knew, if I thought about it, you know, most people I knew either their parents or their grandparents owned the homes that they lived in. So that got me to ask this question, like, how did this neighborhood get to this point and then also how did those conditions make gentrification possible? So that's what the research project in progress in, in progress is about. Wow. So, so tell us how this happened. I mean, from what you found so far. So what I've learned so far is, first of all, I wanted to start with the war on drugs and I did start there, but it put, quickly became clear that I needed to go back further in time in order to understand like, how did this neighborhood get poor? So that led me to developing an understanding of the history of racist housing policies in the city. So in Washington, so the neighborhood that I um, grew up in, in the in 1940, it was 100% white. And um, it was built in the early 20th century by developers and is this row of like row houses and subdivisions. So it was built as a sort of white working and middle-class neighborhood. And then, um, and it had racially restrictive covenants in it. So um, Black people were not able to purchase homes in this neighborhood. But then in 1948, the Supreme Court ruled those covenants were no longer legally enforceable. And then in 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that the schools couldn't be segregated. 
So once the covenants were ruled unenforceable and once the schools were desegregated, Black people began to move into the neighborhood. And I have, I'm, this is the part I'm actually still working out, which is exactly who these Black people were that were able to purchase homes because they did, there were still problems with redlining. There were still problems with um, Black people being able to access mortgages, but they were, they were able to get home. I think a lot of them were veterans. So maybe they were able to access some of the benefits of the GI Bill. So anyway, in the 1950s, um, the neighborhood just flipped, went from 100% white to 90% black in, this, in a very short time period, in about 10 years. So once the neighborhood flipped, you have um, the neighborhood is now primarily black, still large numbers of homeowners, um, working to middle class people. And over and, and it's still a neighborhood with strong, you know, community, strong public schools, et cetera. But so the are city, these mostly middle class blacks who are moving into the neighborhood at this time? So I'm not 100 percent sure, but they're most of them are purchasing homes. So to the extent that middle class status is, is understood as home ownership. But yeah, um, it okay. is. Yeah, you have to have a certain amount. There's not a lot of apartment buildings. There's a few, but it's mostly single family homes in the neighborhood. There's a few apartments. So it's a mix, but it's mostly the neighborhood has pretty much always been at about the median income of the city. So it's not a high poverty neighborhood. Um, so middle class broadly defined, yes. So um, middle class blacks are moving into the neighborhood and purchasing homes. But then in the um, in the 1970s and in the 1980s, there's a movement where um, cities experience disinvestment, right? The federal government starts to disinvest from cities, not investing as much money in public schools. So the public school system grew from 100,000 students to 150,000 students, but didn't see you know, concomitant increases in the budget, for example. Mm-hmm. And the school system became 97% Black. The public school system became 97% Black by, um, by about 1970. So you see, and then the cities also, it's also Washington, D.C., which doesn't, always, doesn't have full control over its finances and budget. And that's sort of a complicated story, but basically... It becomes a primarily black city that doesn't have full democratic control of its finances. And the city ex- begins to experience pretty severe disinvestment. And then, um, and then we have the, the, you know, the jobs crisis, the recession of the 1980s, these sort of things that happen across the country. Um, DC doesn't have big factories, so there's not deindustrialization per se, but we still have high rates of joblessness among, um, among young men in particular. So then, um, so basically the, the neighborhood declines in terms of the public schools are no longer good and are no longer well-funded. Um, you know, the city services are lacking, like the neighborhood's not getting cleaned up, it's not getting taken care of. Um, we have a phenomenon of black middle-class suburbanization. So the neighborhood does experience like a decline in population where about a quarter of the residents, mostly black middle-class left to live in the suburbs once they were able to with the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968. And then um, crack cocaine arrives into the city in the mid-1980s. And you know, there's a lot of myths and legends and stories about crack cocaine, but it had a real impact. And I think like a lot of sociologists, especially like liberal sociologists, don't really want to fully engage with that sort of, because um, there's a lot of demonization of crack and, but it, there's no denying the fact that crack had a huge impact on the city. 
let, let me say this now. Um, my father and sister were crack dealers. And mm -hmm. so was one, uh, two of my brothers were also, right? And um, they had all done time. My sister only jailed time. My father never did time. But I believe that's because my father was snitching, okay? Including on maybe my siblings. All right. But um, so I know like what you're talking about, the devastation that crack does to neighborhoods and families and so on. And yeah, I mean, we should be touching this topic because it's an important topic to think about. If we don't look at it, I mean, this stuff can recreate itself again in the future. So, so thank you. So, and crack also made, I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, I don't like to use the word. I mean, it's crazy talking to kids. Like, so I've been interviewing guys like from my time period, 14-year-old guy is literally able to make $1,000 a week. Like it's not, it's a real thing, right? So um, so that had a huge impact on the neighborhood. Um, and, I and, and I remember those days. I mean, the guys had um, these cars, you know, 300Z cars, 400, 4Runners, like all those cars from that. Yeah. Right? Those out here, yeah. <laughs> cars, yeah. outfits, tennis shoes. So it was a real, it was the 80s, right? So that epic of a time period of material, of high materialism, but people really were making a lot of money. Anyway, so that really changed the fabric of the neighborhood um, and provided a, an economic opportunity for a, a lot of youth, which ended up having devastating consequences for them. So, so there's a whole part of the story of the devastation of the crack era and then the city's response to the high levels of addiction, et cetera, of just full on, coercive arm of the state. So, um, you know, I met this one guy who um, ended up committing a, a violent crime, but that's the first time the state stepped into his life. You know, he grew up with his mother, his parents addicted to drugs. He's out on the streets washing windows, you know, from the age of, 11, you know, washing at the working at the, as a guy that cleans the windows at the gas station from like 11 years old. So obviously the state should have stepped in earlier to help him out. But the first yeah, time, no intervention, yeah. no intervention. the first intervention is a life sentence. Right. right. So we see that pattern over and over again. Um, and he also came from a middle class home owning family, you know, but his mother fell into addiction and just went, on, went down that route. So, so there is a real disinvestment in um, communities and, and there's different patterns. So I, I'm going to focus on. So some of the communities are, you know, public housing and a certain kind of disinvestment. But in the home owning communities, which um, become eligible for gentrification in a different way, because these are. These are nice homes built for, you know, built for the white middle class in the early 20th century that um, become devalued, get foreclosed, become um, even seized by the state in the asset for through the asset forfeiture programs. Um, so anyway, so the the war on drugs, the the disinvestment sets the stage for the war on drugs. The war on drugs sets the stage for um, for like the cleaning out, like people leaving the neighborhood, which then makes gentrification possible. So that's the sort of arc of the story um, on the this intersection between the war on drugs and gentrification in Washington, D.C. Let me ask you some details on it, because it's interesting. And by the way, um, for those of you who don't know, and you don't, you probably don't know this yourself, I did spend nine years working as a probation officer because um. um, uh, I used to volunteer at this local park working with 13-year-olds in a low-income Latino neighborhood. And a friend of mine, his father was a supervisor for the probation department. He said, would you like to get paid to work with the same kids you're volunteering with? So I said, sure. And I want to keep them out of the system and stuff. So, so you know, this is really interesting because in L.A., there was this thing that was done for with gangsters, right? These gang injunctions. 
that were done. So gangsters who were, let's say, living in Pasadena, they were Pasadena, Denver Lane, Bloods, okay? Um, what would happen is they would tell them they could no longer live in that section of Pasadena, and then they would have to move out. Were there similar things, or have you found yet that there were similar things happening in Washington, this forcible removal of people from neighborhoods because they had committed crimes? No, so, um, and D.C. doesn't have or didn't have like gangs in that way at all. What we had were just neighborhood crews and it was really just organized around the drug selling market. So um, I think they, there are gangs now and that has evolved and there may even be gang injunctions, I'm not sure. But during the time in the 80s and 90s, people were organized, people, people were organized around the neighborhood that they sold drugs or grew up in. So like, it, it's like the names of the crews would just be like, you know, 14th Street or whatever the name of the place that they grew up in. So they weren't getting expelled in that way. Um, it's more, the process is a little more subtle where, um, just think about this. In 1997, 50% of Black men in Washington, D.C. were somehow entangled in the criminal justice system. I right? mean, they were on probation, in jail, in prison, waiting for a trial, out on a warrant. Um, so that, that, so just, Think about how widespread that devastation was and how economically difficult those circumstances are going to be for families. So I think a lot of what happened is um, just that criminal justice involvement put a, a severe tax on families and families end up leaving the communities because they can no longer afford to live there or because they don't want the kids to get in trouble anymore. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a more like subtle set of factors, I think, that are leading um, to the displacement. Another thing that's leading to displacement is... A lot of times the homes were owned by the grandparents, right? So you have a home owned by grandma and grandpa, but then her, because of the devastation, economic devastation of the 1970s, her kids are not actually able to purchase their homes. And then, and then the home eventually maybe gets sold or foreclosed or whatever happens to it, but it's not enough to set up the next generation for wealth. It's interesting because I think we think about like, so in my case, my family is white. So my grand, my grandmother, um, my, my grandfather served in World War II, came home from the war, gets the GI Bill, buys a house um, in New York. And then, you know, that that serves as the kind of the basis of wealth generation for my parents. So my grandparents are working class, but that sets up their kids for middle class status. And then that sort of that privilege kind of comes down to me and my and my brothers and sisters and my cousins. Right. So we're all stably middle. Well, we all had that set up. Right. But what I've seen with. Black families in Washington, D.C. is the grandparents were able to also purchase homes during that time period. But a whole series of things happen that make it such that that, that instead of leading to wealth generation, their wealth gets dispossessed. Right. Right. You know, I, I my mom um, bought a home at Pacoima when I was a little kid. And I, I explained this to my my kids, my students about how, you know, like, you know, you make money off of homes and stuff and wealth gets generated this way, but not the same for people of color. So Pacoima at the time, uh, it was a black township in, in the San Fernando Valley, right? Because people were moving from places like Inglewood and South Central to work at the GM plant as janitors and custodians and sometimes in the manufacturing portion. And they were only allowed to live in Pacoima. So my mom buys this home in the 1960s for like $30,000, 
you know, and, which isn't a lot of money today. And it, it was you know, a decent amount of money back then, but not too expensive where she could afford to buy it. And now the same home, which is about a mile and a half from where I live, because I live in Silmar, a mile and a half from that home that I started off in, um, that home is probably today worth maybe 380000 Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So I explained to my students, even if you kept all that wealth, that's only, you know, $350,000 worth of wealth, three hundred eighty that you're going to hand down to your kids and so on. And depending on how many kids you have, that's not a lot for them to split up, as opposed to if she was allowed to buy an Encino, mm-hmm. where back then maybe it would have been $80,000, but today it would have been about three or four million at yeah. that same home. You know, it's worth, you know. So, yeah, so there's that too. And I think also what happens sometimes is you get grandma's house, and like you said, you're economically struggling, and maybe the house is even paid off, you know, and so on, but you, you still do have to pay the property tax, and maybe you can do that. But eventually, when you're struggling, sometimes you take out a loan against the house, you know, and then that's when you start to struggle with the bills yourself and end up losing the home as well. And you also mentioned asset forfeiture, right, which also happens too. Where, you know, drug dealers buy these homes, they put them in other people's names, and sometimes you can, you know, take, you know, take these assets away from people. So what's interesting then is, so it seems like you have all these economic devastation in this neighborhood. You have these people being forced out of this neighborhood. So white people come in, like vultures, or what goes on here? So um, white people start, well, the, 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 and lots of things going on. One thing happens is the city, so at the at the end of the 20th century, Washington D.C. is an economically depressed city with a relatively low population. It went down from a high of 800,000 resident residents all the way down to 500,000. So the city's suffering because it doesn't have a tax base. So the mayor, black mayor, um, he says, you know, we need to do something about this tax base. We need to attract high income, childless people <laughs> to the city. <laughs> Because they're going to pay a lot in taxes and not use and a lot not of taxes. use taxes for, for education. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So they had a plan. You know, they, I mean, there's literally a plan to attract 100,000 residents in the in the next decade, and they did. And and the city's population has just been growing since. So, and that but so that involves a lot of um, you know some investment in the city, a bunch of tax cuts for developers. Um, my father's a bus driver, so he always points out that. The city spent a ton of money building like metro stations with, for the subway system in Washington, D.C. And then they give all these tax cuts to developers to build around, you know, those metro stations. So the developers leave, make tons of money because every time there's a metro station, the, you know, the, the, the property values go up tremendously. So a lot of things happen. But basically, um, developers come in in some cases and, and build, you know, these high rise apartment buildings and complexes that cater to this population that they're imagining and then at the same time, um, so the neighborhood that I grew up in, Redfin listed in 2016 as the most profitable neighborhood to flip a home mm. with an average profit of 300000 So basically people are buying grandma's house for $390,000 and selling it for $690,000 because, um, because, you know, they have, they have the capital, they have an eye for the market, they know what these new, this new class of people want, you know, you walk around the neighborhood and you can just see the flipped houses because they, they meet a certain aesthetic standard. They're all kind of, they're all kind of developed and they're, they're brick row houses, right? But the yard, maybe they paint the the bricks on the outside gray, the the way the door is. Anyway, so the people that have the, the cultural and the cultural and financial capital to, recreate the houses in the ways that the gentrifying class would want are able to make a ton of money. 
Um, and then, you know, the city, the, the community does have more amenities than it used to, but now people that, um, most people that grew up there are priced out. And so they're, and they're priced out because the schools were in such bad shape, right? So, you know, high school graduation rates were about 50% in, in, 19, in 1990. So in order to live in that neighborhood today, in order to have even the income, not to mention the wealth, in order to pr- purchase a home, you need a you need a, a job that usually requires a college education. And a lot of people didn't end up going to college because um, they weren't prepared for that in high school. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, um, as you were talking about us, thinking about um, a conversation that I had with a, a previous on a previous podcast with Christina Jackson, where we both talked about even as African Americans, we can be gentrifiers, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Because uh, I live in the San Fernando Valley, born and raised, like I said, a mile and a half from where I live. But my wife works at Santa Monica College, which is over the hill. And we thought about buying in Inglewood, right? And I, I don't know if you know right now, Inglewood's going through that gentrification process now. But we can't afford in Santa Monica or, or that close, but maybe we can still afford in Inglewood. So we thought about buying there. But then we always come back to the point that now we're the gentrifiers at that point. And people who born and raised in Inglewood are not going to be able to you know, buy homes in their own neighborhoods. And then they have to move out further and further away from family, from jobs, you know, from the places they grew up. You know, and it's really kind of sad. Also, there's that concept that Latinos will use sometimes for Latinos who are middle class who move into those neighborhoods, gentrification, right? <laughs> you know, where you see your people come in and then they start changing all this stuff, right? So, yeah, that's really interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is something that is as important to study because I don't think we think about it. I know that we've thought about gentrification and homeless people and the movement of homeless people, but not necessarily the movement of, you know, like, you know, the, the, the drug trade, how it played into this. I also find um, something that very interesting, too, that I tell my students is we also need to understand gentrification from from white people's point of view. Right. White people aren't moving into D.C. because they thought I really want to live in D.C. Many of them are moving into D.C. because they've also been priced out of their own neighborhoods, you know, where they can no longer afford to live where they grew up and where their parents bought. So now they're moving into other spaces and taking over their neighborhoods, too. So. I mean, I think in D.C. it's a different dynamic where um, here's, okay, so when I'm in D.C., if I go, well, I was there been in a while, but when it's not the pandemic times and I go to a bar in D.C., I'll meet someone that say, hey, where are you from? I say, oh, I'm from here. I'm from D.C. They're like, oh, wow. You know, I've lived here for five years and you're the first D.C. native I've met. Right? <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. The transplant population is huge in D.C., mostly white, not exclusively white. Obviously, there's people from all over. Um, but then the D.C. native population is majority black and pretty separated from the transplant population. So I think in Washington, D.C., a lot of times what's happening is it's people that are moving there from other parts of the world or the country for work. Right. But there is a there is a there is a return to the city movement where people um, suburban living has become less attractive. But what's right. interesting about it for me in DC is um, people are white families are moving white young white families are moving into these neighborhoods, but they're not sending their kids to the public school like for the most part, and even to the charter schools, right? So um, every city is different, but DC, the public and the charter school system are still over 90% Black and Latinx kids, right? So it's not, the white kids are not going. So I'm not sure if they're moving out when the kids turn five 
afford, I mean, because how can they afford a million dollar house and private school tuition? Like, so it's a lot, um, or, you know, so I don't know exactly what's going on. One thing that's super interesting is um, there are a couple of schools that have flipped. So I think there's like a tipping point. I think there's, a, so there'll be a school, like there's a school in Capitol Hill that was 90% black, you know, since desegregation. So between 1954 and 1990 or 2005, it's like 100% black. But somehow today is 50% white. And I don't, I think, the, but there's a couple of schools like that. There's maybe five schools that have flipped. And there's that really interesting podcast. I don't know if you've heard it. Nice White Parents that talks about that. Yes, book. it's yeah. amazing. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so there's, there's these exceptional cases where um, new white residents are able to mobilize their resources and make and transform the local school to their liking. But when they can't do that, they don't send their kids. The, 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 the neighborhood where I grew up is, well, depending on how you count, but some parts of it are 50% white. The school is 92% students, black and Latinx students. Yeah. You know, when you talk about this concept of schools too, um, often with my black and Latino friends, well, even when I was growing up, a lot of people would say, I want to move to a good neighborhood with good schools. And I would laugh and say, why don't you say it as it is? You mean a white neighborhood with white schools, right? Because that's what we associated with. And and part of it is because, yeah, they don't spend the resources within those neighborhoods. And we've had gentrification come out here, but they've shown that schools are more racially segregated here in Los Angeles than they were in the 1970s. You know, And a lot of it now has to do with what you're talking about, this white flight. And some of them are going to... Um, just these certain charter schools that they like in our, in the case of San Fernando Valley, be El Camino and Granada Hills uh, charter schools. But then some are going to public schools that are actually out of LA County, but barely out of LA County. And then others are going to private school. Yeah. So uh, I don't know maybe they're finding a way to pay for it, but yeah, it's a good question where they, where are they going at that point? You know? So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, another question I have for you, yeah, you because know, this is really interesting research that you're doing, but you're doing a lot of other stuff too. So I want to talk, you have time to talk about some of this other stuff. Um, what you have this this blog called Get a Life PhD blog, all right? And that's a really interesting title. Can you talk a little bit about that blog? Sure. Um, so in 2010 or so, about 10 years ago, I decided to start a blog, and uh, I was posting random things on the blog. But over the course of about a year, I saw that the posts that I would post, the blog posts I would write that were mostly about like how to be an academic, how to how to do things, the how-to ones were getting the most reads. So I was like, okay, well, and then I took this, then I kind of got interested in blogging as a, as a form. I took this class on blogging and they said, you know, if you want to blog, you need to pick a topic. You can't just can't just put a blog, tanyagolashboza.com, and then expect people to come read whatever you randomly think. Unless you're famous, you could do that. But if you're Kim Kardashian, you can do that. But if you're just a regular person, you need to pick a topic. So I was like, well, thinking about the blog that I have, this is one area that seems to generate a lot of interest. So I decided to focus on specifically on that. You know, get a life PhD just means how to be an academic and have a life too. And the idea, the main reason why I wrote the blog and continue to write on it is just to democratize knowledge in the academy. There's all these hidden curriculum, things that people don't know. I think back to when I first wanted to write a book, you know, like like many academics, I wanted to write a book, but if you've never written a book before, you have no idea where to start. There's all kinds of books on writing books, but you don't even know which book to read or where to. So um, for me, it was super important to try and 
give people just practical tips. Hey, you want to do this? Here's here's how you do it. You want to do this? Here's how you do it. Um, so that's that was the impetus for doing the Get a Life BSC blog. So, uh, which one was your favorite one to write? Which post? Yeah, I think I think when I um, that's a good question. But I think one of my favorites is definitely um, it's called something like "People Fought for the Forty Hour Week." Why are you trying to Why are you trying to work more hours? (laughs) (laughs) You know all those studies that talk about Americans work more than most people around the world and stuff. And um, it's insane. We have little vacation time. Often we don't take vacation time. Like I didn't used to take vacation time because I I used to work for UPS as a part-time supervisor. I only made $2,000 a month. So they give you two weeks vacation a year, but you could cash it out instead of take it. And that's what I would do so I can get an extra two weeks pay and stuff. But then, you know, lack of holidays and always working overtime whenever you're asked is crazy when you really think about it, you know. So. And I think in, in academia, people people idolize that. Like um, one of my colleagues said, you know, think about academia is you work any, you can work any 80 hours of the week you want. I'm like, why would you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like this. The our ancestors worked hard for that forty-hour week. Why would you voluntarily? <laughs> you know, look, I gotta tell you, my wife has got it down to a science. Though mm-hmm. she, she pretty much is says, "I am going to do what is needed when it's needed." And I'm not going to do too much more. She does do a little extra work and stuff and probably goes over 40. But sometimes she thinks I'm crazy for the amount of work that I I put into certain things and stuff. And she's like, my work is just as good as yours. And I'm not killing myself to do it. You know, so, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. you So uh, uh, which one was the one that you think that most people engage with as out of your blogs? I mean, honestly, though, it, you can see on the blo- on the on the blog page, it has the top ten posts. And actually, recently oh. did a blog a blogging workshop, so I told the people in the blogging workshop, "Here's the top ten posts." And what do you notice about the titles of all these? They were all like, "How to write a literature review," "How to write every day," all the how tos. People like those. Yeah. Um, I think how to write a literature no, sorry, how to write a literature review and how to respond to revise and resubmit might be the two most popular. And I think just giving practical like. Here's how you start. Here's what you do. Um, you get an R and R. Okay. Here's what. Here's the next step. Just breaking it down step by step. Those are the ones that people like the most, and I. And those are the ones I like too because my student gets an R and R on their article. I'm like, here, read this post. Follow these instructions. <laughs> so you don't even have to go over it again. Here, just go here. No, that's great. I mean, that's a great place to go. Uh, um, often when we're going to graduate school, we don't get enough feedback from our mentors, and I think part of it is that. They don't, I don't think they really teach you all how to mentor. <laughs> you know, you kind of just learn from past experiences. And if those past experiences weren't the greatest, then, yeah. I remember one time um, uh, my advisor, okay, who's Mike Messner, right? He came to me and he goes, he, he read something I wrote and he said, you need to write more like an academic. And I'm like, oh, I, what does that mean? And he tells me, he goes, read some academic journals, find a style that you like, and then you can kind of mimic that style. So I said, oh, okay. So I read some academic journal, did this, did what he said, brought it back. And he says to me, he goes, James, I thought I told you to write more like an academic. And I said, I did exactly what you said, Mike. I went and I read a bunch of journals. And what I found was I really liked your style and the way you write, because he writes in an everyday style, right? And so I mimicked that style. And he goes, James, 
I can't only write like Mike Messner now. I couldn't write like that then when I was first starting out, right? But yeah, it's like it, it it's it's kind of a an art that is not really taught to to each person on how to mentor. So I think this would be a great blog site for people to check out for themselves and get some of that advice, you know. And it's interesting. I think the reason the how tos are you know the top 10 is because yeah a lot of people still are running in the blind including a lot of professors who are new to the game or have are struggling with these type of issues by the way how to re get the revise and resubmit do you talk about dealing with rejection um it taught i mean in the it, it it gives you a strategy for like um so it doesn't have the rejection specifically but it's just about like take the reviews this is what I did with my book, actually. I got my book reviews back. And some of them were, some of the things people said was mean. So I rewrote them. So it'll say something like, this This has no theoretical framework. So you just rewrite that, you know, develop the theoretical framework. <laughs> so then you have to look at the mean. So even if you get a rejection, you can, there might be something useful in there. Um, there might not right. be. But you can look at it and maybe even go with a friend and to kind of say, okay, let's look and see. Is there anything useful in here? So if the person's sometimes the person really doesn't get it, but I usually try and approach it with like, okay, let's say that this person is not just being mean. Let's say that they just don't have a lot of, um, they don't know how to say things nicely. So <laughs> what's going on here? Is there anything we can get out of this? But then don't read it again. Like read it that one time closely, rewrite it, and then you don't have to ever look at the actual letter again. Yeah, I don't think people realize how tough that can be even on the revise and resubmit, you know, because you put your heart and your soul into this. Of course, when you turned it in, you thought it was amazing. Right. And then all of a sudden you get all these comments and a lot of them are negative. I think that's also another thing about grad school that I noticed uh, as we were reading Marx and Durkheim and Weber and classic theory, and then later reading Bonilla Silva and, you know, and, and uh, you know, a variety of other researchers. I, I was in more, mostly race, but Joe Fagan and things, Jane Ward. So as you read through all these people, what do you do? You criticize them. You rip them apart. Oh, I, I think they could have done this bit. And at one point, I was sitting in a graduate seminar. I'm like, here we are, a bunch of graduate schools, students ripping apart the greatest thinkers, sometimes in the history of sociology, you know, and we had nothing good to say. You know? And I feel sometimes that's how it comes across as, on reviews is that they're looking at what needs to be improved and you don't get necessarily a lot of positive feedback. So I always tell students, if you're thinking about going to grad school and going to a research one or, or, or Cal State, you know, where you still have to do research, you better be good with rejection. You know, so. Definitely. 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 Very good with rejection. <laughs> <laughs> because even usually when you get accepted, it's almost like if it's not that someone totally rejected you, like let's say you ask someone out and they say no. It's more like they say, not yet. But maybe if you do something about your hair, your clothes, and your breath, I'll reconsider this. <laughs> Either way, it doesn't feel very good. So, yeah, I think that that's a great blog, you know, that could really help. Something else you do, you write textbooks. You know, so tell us a little bit about that. How would you get into it? Why? And how's it going for you? So, and I've used your textbook, by the way. Well, thank you for that. Um, My wife as well. Oh, cool. Thanks to both of you. Yeah. So I um, I got an email from an editor, a, a, an editor, the editor at Oxford University Press um, a, a while ago, probably a, over a decade ago. And she said, would you be interested in writing a textbook? And I thought to myself, 
You know what? I'm going to um, I'm going to write back to her with the textbook that I would write. I'm sure she's going to say no. But I was like, if it, I was like the race textbooks at the time, you know, I didn't think that they were doing a great job because they're all like, here's the African-Americans. Here's the Chicanos. Here's the Native Americans. I was like, that's not how people live in society. They weren't very critical. Um, and they didn't have a lot of history in them. So I was like, you know, if I were to write a textbook on race, I would organize it like this. So I kind of wrote it back. I wrote her back a, a, a very brief proposal, but basically taking my race class. And this is what I would write. And it would be critical, you know, centering critical race theory. And this, and, and I was pretty sure she was going to say, that's not what we're looking for. And I would have just say, okay, well, find someone else. But she was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is exactly what we're looking for. And so, you know, one thing about publishing, people say this a lot, but if you find an editor that can see you and gets you, it's it's a real gift because a lot. I mean, there is a lot in public. So book publishing is a little different from article publishing, where you do have a, you develop a relationship with the editor. But it can be fine to find. It can be hard to find one that like actually gets your vision and and is on board with it and isn't trying to like push you to do something else. So. So then I was like, oh, so then she was like, I really want this. This is, you know, great. When can you have the first chapter to me? I was like, oh, wow. Like, this is, <laughs> now that I said I do it, I better do it. Um, so that's how I got into it. And, you know, writing a textbook on the one hand, the way I think about it is I'm a race scholar. I teach race. I think that the way that I teach race is the way race should be taught. So if you write a textbook, then you can shape how other people are teaching race as well. So you can have influence beyond, beyond your own classroom. right? And, and, and the book is not for everyone. And so we get reviews back. So textbooks get like tons of reviews. Every time it, it gets a new edition, it gets like 15 reviews. And there's always going to be two or three reviewers that say, you know, I would never use this book. My students will, will not like it. It's too critical. You know, it just, you know, it calls out white supremacy too directly. Um, it has too much history. And I'm just like, well, that's the book is not for you. It's for people that think that understanding the history is important, people that want, want to take a critical approach. So anyway, so you so but and the publisher is fine with that, with it not being it's not trying to be like the book that every person that teaches race wants to use. But it is it is very popular. So that makes me feel fulfilled. Yeah. You know, I think uh, sociologists were often very ahistorical. You know, and history does matter. I mean, it's important, you know, and, and what do you say to some critics who, you know, you have these purists who think you should never be using a textbook in your race class. You know, so what do you say to those people? You know, I thought a lot about pedagogy, as I'm sure you have, too. But I'm like, so what are you what are you doing in your classes? Right. What are you and, and a lot of times with well, the people that don't use textbooks, especially for lower division classes. A lot of times, not everyone, but a lot of them are having their students read and then they're lecturing. I'm like, you know what? Right. Instead of lecturing, you can have them read a textbook. So what it does for me is instead of me getting up there and explaining all this background to students, they can read it. They can come to class. I can give them a quick recap and then we can spend the rest of the time just engaging with the material. And they have that background knowledge. I think I, mean, I understand certainly for upper division classes, um, I don't tend to use textbooks myself. But I've come to see that with teaching lower division race, it just you just you need the basics. So you can't just yeah. if you just jump in there with a, like I used to teach um, you know five books. We'd have five books. I thought you know, this, I really want students to love books as much as I love books. So you give them five books and they read the five books. 
but I'm, I have to spend a lot of time lecturing to sort of explain the connections between the books, give them all the background information, give them the sociological concepts they need to understand it. And that's fine. But then I realized if I could just put all that background information into the textbook and then they can digest it <laughs> easily, then, um, so that's why I think textbooks are good for lower division. Um, Cause I think, I think it helps you move away from lecturing, which I think is um, a good thing. Yeah. I, I think also we have to think about where our students are coming from and our students have come from a K through 12 system that has dealt with nothing but textbooks. And I think as freshmen in particular, and even as sophomores that you kind of have to ease them into the reading of anthologies and articles and other books. I also think that a textbook kind of gives me a framework when I do use it that I can follow and it helps students to go on a journey. Okay. That they can follow this outside of the lecture. So if they're confused by something, they can now go back to the textbook and see it. I also feel some faculty I, 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 that I, I sometimes I do re- use anthologies, by the way. So I go back and forth. I change my books a lot and because I just can't teach through the same medium every single time because I get bored. And I feel like if I'm bored, you must be bored too. And so, um, but they, they, I do always end up going back to textbooks. And a friend of mine, he said once, he goes, I'll never use an anthology. And I go, why? He lacked the confidence, the personal confidence of being able to f- make sure that he covered everything that should be covered. So he did love the structure of a textbook that helped him make sure that he covered everything that some people agreed were essential you know, in, in that field. So I thought it was nice, too. So how hard is it to write a textbook? It's like taking comprehensive exams every day for a couple of years. <laughs> Not taking them, but studying for them. I thought it like, I was like, okay, I took my comprehensive exam on race in 2000. So now this is, I'm doing it again 10 years later. So it's like, yeah, it's basically like that. You read, you take notes, you write. So, and some of the chapters, like the race, the history of race chapter, that's something I've been long interested in. So that was easy to write. But like the labor market chapter wasn't my, um, you know, I didn't know a ton about race in the labor market. So it depends. So some chapters you have to go you figure out, like every, for every chapter, figure out what's the, what do we need to know on race and education, for example? What are the main frameworks that are important to understand? So <laughs> it's like comprehensive exam. Yeah. You do realize your descriptions have scared away most people from ever writing a textbook. <laughs> what are some of the things you hated about graduate school? Oh, comprehensive exams. <laughs> I kind of like them, though, because I felt like for mine, okay, here's, I'll, I'll put a different spin on it. So I went to the University of North Carolina. I got my PhD in 2005. I took my exams in 2003. Prior to that point, no one had ever taken a race exam at the University of North Carolina. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so oh, wow. the good thing about that for me was that it meant that I wrote the basics. Like, because most of the lists, most of the exam had lists, pre-existing lists. So what I got to do was sit down and, and make a list of every race book that I wanted to read. And, you know, they're organized mm-hmm. thematically, but I was able to shape the list to exactly. Here's, so for me, it was kind of exciting because it was like I get to read everything that I really want to read. And um, so that's kind of so the textbook is kind of the same. Like, I always felt like I should know more about race in the labor market. I should have a better understanding of race in the criminal justice system. I should have a better understanding of this. So it gives you the opportunity to really like dig in and make sure that you have that deep understanding of every, of every subfield within your subfield. Yeah. You know, uh, at our campus, we had to take it within two fields and my two fields were race and gender. Mm -hmm. And it was a two and a half day, two and a half day exam. Now, 
I'm going to say this as an advice for every graduate student, okay? Um, well, I'll, let me just tell you a little story. Once way back when, do you remember when that graduate student who shot up the movie theater uh, during the Batman movie? Okay. So I, I was in graduate school at the time and some of my friends were graduate students. They said, that's what graduate school will do to you. And I'm like, no, it won't. Stop. Stop acting like this. And because I, I came from a, a world where I spent a lot, a lot of time working and working low income jobs and I was poor. And, um, you know, I worked at, for the, I worked for McDonald's for UPS, horrible jobs, you know, and, U, and UPS damaged my body and everything else and stuff. So I saw this kind of as a privilege that I was getting paid money for my, you know, for, to read and write and to learn, you know, and so on. And thought, wow, I'd never be in this position. It wasn't a lot of money. I agree. So when I took my exams, this two and a half day exam, uh, that I'm at home, I made bowl, uh, pots of chili that I was going to eat, and I was going to take a break for to eat only, and go to sleep at eleven, and wake up at seven, and start all over again, and stay on the schedule. But the second day into the exam, I was like, "Fuck this shit! I am tired. I hate this. This is oppressive. This is bullshit. I'm banging my head against the wall at this point. I'm getting ready to burn every book in my living room, you know, and so on." And then I. I put it in perspective. I said, while I'm complaining about reading and writing for a living, there are people currently right now picking strawberries in 110 degree heat outside, you know? And so this is still a privilege, you know, but it's hard when you're in those moments because yeah, it's, it's nothing easy and comprehensive, nothing easy. It sounds like writing a textbook once again is nothing easy. So I think you really have to be committed to getting through that textbook. And on top of it, I think when you're at a research one, you have these other commitments to trying to get into scholarly journals and, you know, and write, uh, write other scholarly books that are not textbooks at the same time, not to mention the pressures of teaching and committee work and things like that, too. So I don't know how you do it. One thing at a time. I think I, I, I think for me, what I'll say, I really agree that perspective is super important. Uh, one of my students, because, um, you know, there's also that perspective of should we be recruiting into grad programs right now, given the economy and the, the difficulty in attaining positions. But one of my first students, he, sent me, he was like, look, I'm getting, he's like, I'm making the same thing as my friends working at McDonald's and I get to read and write all day. So. Yeah, yeah. When I had Eduardo Bonilla Silva on the podcast, um, at one point we were talking about the racism in academia, and I said, "What do you say to uh, African American Latino students and professors who say, oh, 'Oh, don't get into academia; it's so tough with all the racism'?" He said, "Easy, racism is everywhere. I don't care what job you go to; you're going to experience racism. So this is probably a better place to experience racism than other places because of the pay and the lack of damage to your body and stuff like that." So. Yeah, so he said, I would still say do it. If you think you're going to escape a racism, you're not going to. So, yeah, so perspective really is important. Another question I have for you, you consider yourself a public intellectual. What does that mean to you? So what that means to me is, first of all, I really value the scholarship side of what I do, the intellectual side, right? I think it's, I think it's an honor and a privilege to be able to create new knowledge, right? And I think that ha there's definitely a place and I don't think every academic needs to be a public intellectual if they don't want to, but that, but if you, but for me, um, so there's knowledge that I create in my job as, a, as an academic. And I, I could 
create a situation where I talk to reporters and they write pieces based on the work that I've done. But I found that I prefer to do it myself, right? Like if my work is going to get out there to a broader audience, you know, I, I approach it like this, like, well, I can learn how to write an op-ed. I can learn how to write a magazine piece. I can learn how to write a book for a popular audience. And that way, there's always going to be nuance lost, right? When you're translating your work for a broader audience, you can't, you can't go, you can't take all the time to give all the nuance that you want to give and the, which the audience is not going to care about. But at least you can, if you're speaking directly to the public, um, you can put the message the way that you want to. So I do that in terms of writing op-eds, but also in terms of public speaking. And again, like, I find public speaking to be super meaningful, right? Because you're creating a, especially in person, which we're not doing right now, but um, you create a direct connection with the audience. And then, so when you're, and you're seeing how they, how what you're saying is, it's kind of like teaching, right? You see what they're, what they're getting, what they're not getting, what lights their eyes up, um, what raises their eyebrows, what causes them to frown. So that, that immediate feedback, right? Like you're, um, sharing your perspective live with community members, with students, with other groups. And that can be super invigorating and meaningful. And then also you're not, you're not adding on that filter. It's not like my research being cited by someone else. It's me directly explaining um, my perspective based on my research to a broader audience. So is this where your TED talks come in and things like that? Yeah. And the TED talk aspect of it is something I'm, working on, which is that requires also building in the personal narrative. So being able to tell that I, I, I barely told anyone that story that I told you at the beginning, right. Of me growing up in a primarily black neighborhood. Cause I just, it just felt very personal and I didn't want to kind of frame my scholarship around that, around my personal story. Um, although my personal story is very much the motivation for my, for all of my research. Um, I didn't want to frame it that way um, for all kinds of reasons, but now that I'm, more advanced in my career, and I really don't have very many fucks left to give about things. I feel more, <laughs> <laughs> feel more comfortable doing that. But the thing about a TED talk or or that or those kinds of talks is, you know, telling your personal story is inspirational. That's it. it, it people connect. Right. It. it also means it puts you vulnerable. So now, um, the more people that know your story, they know more about you. They can make more direct personal attacks on you. So you have to also be ready for that. I think any public intellectual activity that you do, the way I think about it is if you never get critiqued for your ideas, your audience is pretty small, right? So if I just sit here mm. and talk to my kid, you know, I'll still get critiqued because she's, she's a critic, but it won't be that harsh, <laughs> right? So more, you know, so anyway, so when you are doing, being a public intellectual, you are going to reach audiences that will give critiques. And if you make yourself vulnerable by telling your story, then you'll get personal attacks and you have to decide whether or not that's worth it um, in the balance of things. I, I tell my personal story, you know, all the time now, and I actually began to do that when I was working in juvenile hall, because when I first started working there, they said, tell the kids why you're here so you can create that connection with, with the young people you're working with. And that's when I first started telling the story. And I didn't know how damaging that story was to me because there was a lot of violence in my family and everything. But uh, until I started to tell the story the first few times and I would tear up and choke up, you know, and, but then the student, I mean, the students, the young people who I was in charge of, they automatically created a connection and then they had gone through some similar things and it really created a great relationship with the young people that I worked with, you know. And I also remember you, you talked about these critiques, right? I remember um, a friend of mine when I was in graduate school, 
she she was uh, writing a, a something that she was going to send out, and she said to me, she goes, James, what if people start criticizing this and they don't like it? And I said, you know, the only thing worse than people criticizing it is no one says nothing at all. <laughs> and it was completely meaningless. At least if they're criticizing it, they read it and they felt it was worth an argument. <laughs> you know, so I, as far as personal critiques go, you're right. You know, you have to be willing to take those. I mean, once again, I'll go back to Mike Messner, who, you know, uh, you know, I, I love his mentorship and everything else, but he's extremely reflexive in his work, uh, extremely reflexive. He wrote articles and then had his students read them that I don't know if I would be that reflexive. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one dealing with his homophobia when he was young and all this other stuff. So, you know, then his son once told me about this other article he wrote that was even more reflexive than that. I'm like, oh, my gosh. But but I think it is it is a great way to connect with people and for, for people to also connect with you. And it is risky. Uh, but I think it also it also exemplifies something that people can now do in their own personal lives. Sometimes we hold secrets near and, and way too dear and secrets that if we shared, we can create connections with other people and let them know that they're not alone, you know? And I think that's the value in sometimes sharing those experiences, you know, and also they can see themselves in you and think, well, one day I could be a PhD professor and teach that, you know, which I think becomes really important too. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you for doing that. As far as your public speaking goes, is it always in an academic setting or the TED Talks? Or are there other places that you do your public speaking as well? Um, I like to speak at community events. Those are super, um, it, it's, it's super important. So for my research, I also like to be able to speak directly to communities that are impacted in order to get their perspective, in order to see um what ideas hit or resonate with them. So it's, I like to speak at community organizations, um, but mostly at this point, I mostly speak at universities. The vast majority of times that I'm invited to speak somewhere at the university. And I think that's, that's also important. I think a lot of times when academics think about being a public intellectual or having a broader audience, we forget that we have one, there's one audience that's huge that we know very well, and that's students, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, no, you know that you know that's so taken for granted at the research one level. You know, I think because at the, at our level, of course, that's all we do is teach at the community colleges. CSU's teachings first, research second. But I explained to my students who want to go to UCLA. Not everyone there is going to be a great teacher. In fact, you're going to have professors who don't want to teach you know they'll buy themselves out of teaching they'll they rather teach graduate students and they forget this large audience of people who are going to be shaping the futures of the united states you know I always point out that that generation before before this one was the most educated generation in the history of the united states and they still elected donald trump right <laughs> Yep. There's a suspension of critical thinking skills there that could have been filled by some of these public intellectuals, you know, could have spoke to those undergraduates. So, yeah. So thank you for what you do. In connection to this, you also um, talk about the intersection between scholarship and activism. What does that intersection look like to you? Well, I, I was raised in a very activist family. So I, I think I've, I was definitely an activist long before I became a scholar. So, um, I think it shows up kind of everywhere and it, it depends on 
what I'm doing, where, or what stage I'm at of my life or my career, where it might show up. But just give you a couple of examples. Um, so I, I, I think the easiest thing for me to do, or the thing that I feel like I'm best positioned to do, is to do the public scholarship. You know, to like to write the op-eds or to write books or articles that activists might use. So thinking about like our role as intellectuals can sometimes be. Um, we have this privilege of having all this time to sit and think, to analyze the data, right? I'm involved in this group right now where every proposal that comes out of the Biden administration involving immigration, this team of professors, we look at everything, we annotate it, and then we share it with activists. So, Because activists don't always have the time to like sit down and analyze, or they don't have all the background knowledge because they haven't been studying these things for years. So I think that the intellectual part of it, I also, um, I write expert witness letters for people who are facing um, deportation to Mexico or Central America. So again, that's where you can just leverage your expertise as an academic to make a a legal argument for why someone shouldn't be deported. Um, Also, since I worked on deportations for a long time, I'm part of this group called ICE out of Merced, which is part of the larger ICE out of California. Um, But having that understanding of how deportations work and what's most effective at the local level and also using my status and position as a professor in order to engage with um, our elected, our local elected officials is a good way to do activism. And, um, but I will say, I always feel like I'm not doing enough because um, I have my father as an example. And my father has seriously dedicated his whole life, like in ways that is extremely unusual to activism. So I always feel like I could be doing more, but my father, um, this is the bus driver father. So he yeah. had a full-time job as a bus driver and then he's doing activism. Great. Well, yeah. I mean, more is, he, he was involved in students for democratic society in, in, um, at Columbia in 1968. And then from there, um, became part of the people that formed the progressive labor party. And then my father, um, as a member of the progressive labor party became a bus driver in order to organize the working class. So he spent his whole life, working towards uh, communist revolution. And he's, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later. I know people in the PLP. I might know your father. Yeah. yeah. You probably know your people, I'm sure. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So so I think about that and I'm thinking, you know, so that what that teaches me, first of all, is um, there's a long game, right? But secondly, that we have to be organized. And I do think that... um, that we're not organized. And you, you we see that, you know, when when things come down, like when when stuff when shit happens locally or at the at the university level, we as faculty are not organized to respond most of the time. So I think right. we should be doing I, I do think that we should be doing more. And I should be doing more in terms of like being organized and being an activist to create better conditions. Yeah, activism is really important to me. And by the way, my mother was a communist, even though she had left Hungary during the the uh, the revolution against Russia, the communists in the Soviet Union. She was a communist herself. She just was against Russian imperialism, right? So she comes over here and raises me in that kind of way too. But she doesn't do that much activism on her own. In fact, doesn't do any activism on her own. But I've been doing activism for a long period of time. And so, yeah, it really is important. And we do need to be more organized. Our union... Our our, uh, community college district is the largest district in the country. You know, we have nine campuses, right? And um, our union, with the help of some friends of mine, Julio Suha and Zach Knorr, we created a social justice committee to try to 
create that infrastructure for organizing when things come up, you know? So, yeah. So, so it, it, it is something we need to think about on the left, you know, of being more organized, being ready to respond to those moments. But at the same time, I don't fault people when they don't have time. One of the things in, in activism that they talk a lot about now is self-care, right? Because activists do not practice self-care. You know, those people working, those community-based organizations, so on, they're just going 24-7. And they don't have time for themselves. They don't have time sometimes for family members and so on. And they get burnt out, you know. So I believe self-care needs to be part of that from now on. And I think that's a good thing that we're finally talking about it. So, yes. so keep doing what you're doing, right? And I always tell people, it doesn't have to be all this big stuff that people talk about organizing marches and movements. Activism could be like volunteering at your local community center or park. You know, that's what I do a lot is I still volunteer at the parks when we before Corona and stuff. And, you know, and just because, you know, I get kids I get to talk to who I still keep in touch with and help get through college and so on. And that's important to me. And now they have different types of lives than they would have had before. So and that changes parts of society, changes their family and their family dynamic, but it also changes, you know, in the long run neighborhoods and so on. We need to reach back for other people and have those individual conversations and forms of activism too. So I think so. And I think, so there's a community activism, but also on campus, right? I think, um, especially as you move up the academic ranks, you have a certain status and power and prestige on your own campus and there's things that you can do there's changes that you can make happen locally that can have an impact on people's lives so there's that part of it too yeah absolutely and i think a campus like merced is really important too because you are in the middle of a mostly farming community right and so it can make such a big difference within that community itself you know so thank you for what y'all do over there and i'm glad that campus is there yeah. So look forward to seeing that being there when they name the building after you. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. So I have one last question for you because mm-hmm. I've taken up a lot of your time, but I've been asking ever since I've had Heather Dalmage on the program. And I always have to say this because I don't want to feel like she's st- I'm stealing it from her and I'm plagiarizing. But she said that sociologists can't talk about bumper stickers. And I thought, wow, it's kind of true. So what I'm going to ask you to do is give me a bumper sticker quote. It doesn't have to be sociological, can be, could be someone else's, you know, whatever, but as long as it can fit on a bumper sticker. So what's your bumper sticker quote? So it's not a privilege to live in a racist society. Ooh, I like that a lot. It's not a privilege to live in a racist society. See, so now I'm going to paraphrase and steal from you and say, it's also not a privilege to live in a sexist society. (laughs) (laughs) So, so thank you. And thank you for your time. And I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to do this and all the work that you do. Thank you. It was a super pleasure to talk to you, get to know you more. And I look forward to continued conversations. Yeah. And one day we'll be at a conference and we actually could sit down and have a drink and want to do one of these things or have a, have a good meal. Definitely, yes. All right. And I want to thank all our listeners for listening to Sociologists Talking Real Shit. Thanks for listening to my dad talk real crap.